Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes 2, you'll need a Bible to follow along. So these brothers have some Bibles. When they make their way to the back, just get their attention if you need one. And they'll get a Bible to you that is marked for you at Ecclesiastes 2. You can keep that as our gift to you. We want everyone to own a copy of God's Word. Ecclesiastes 2. For 50 years, Don Ritchie was the guy with, with the most unusual hobby in Australia. When other men were learning to barbecue or boomerang or whatever it is Australians do all day, Ritchie sat at home quietly looking out the window. Now, that might not sound like anything so unusual, but Richie had a very specific purpose in mind. He and his wife lived at the top of a Sydney suicide hotspot. And Richie had made it his mission to stop as many jumpers as possible. From 1964 to 2012, he watched over this stretch of cliff face, wandering down to anyone who looked upset and simply asking, can I help you in some way? And amazingly, this low-key approach seemed to work. When he died five years ago, in 2012, Richie was credited with saving a minimum of 164 lives. An accolade usually reserved for war veterans or Superman. And that's actually a minimum. Some people estimate the numbers much, much higher. But either way, Richie's combination of insane determination and calm patience saved hundreds of families from losing someone they loved. Now imagine what it feels like to feel as though you are at the end of your rope and you're ready to end it all because there's nothing meaningful to live for. And you're ready to do the deed and then, as if out of nowhere, a guy just shows up and offers to talk and your life is saved and probably many others are saved from unspeakable pain. Now, that is similar to where we are in our study of the book of Ecclesiastes, a book that is about how to find meaning in a meaningless world, which to this point has gone on for almost two full chapters about how hopeless and futile life is. Starting in the very first two verses of chapter one, saying meaningless four times in those two verses and then several times thereafter. Life has been spoken of as useless, like chasing after the wind. And last week, it seemed to have come to a dark crescendo when in verse 17 of chapter 2, it said, So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill... And then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This too 
is meaningless. Our passage today that we're going to consider at the end of chapter 2 finds us, as it were, at the edge of the cliff. Seeing the depressing logic of what Solomon in Ecclesiastes has said already, but then suddenly having someone appear who offers words of hope. That someone is God's servant, Solomon. And the words of hope are from God himself. So let's ask the Lord to help us as we look at those words of hope. Our Father, we thank you again for gathering us. It is your work behind all secondary and tertiary causes. Everything that happens, you are behind it. And so you have set everything in motion for us to be able to be here, to have this divine appointment with you. And so we thank you that we are here. We thank you for calming our hearts and focusing our minds. Help us, Lord, then, to see from your word what you tell us about what life is to be and how we're to truly enjoy it in and only because of you. And thereby may you be glorified, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, every week we have an outline for the message inserted in your program. If you've not gotten that out as yet, I encourage you to do so. And we see, first of all there, I say Christians can have a meaningful life. Christians can have a meaningful life. I say that because of what verse 24 of chapter 2 says. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. Now, after two full chapters of gloom and pessimism, saying things like our activities are pointless and there's no value in our work, we're now told that we should fully engage in life and that satisfaction can be found in our labor. So how is it that we harmonize this statement with all that's preceded it? Well, one way to do that is to see what's said in this verse as simply saying, since there's no meaning in what we do, then get the little bit of enjoyment you can while you can. And in that case, Solomon would be agreeing with the rich fool in one of the parables that Jesus told. That rich fool said, I'll say to myself, eat, drink, and be merry. Or Solomon would be agreeing with those spoke of in the New Testament who have no hope for the future. And so they conclude, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But there's good reason to believe that Solomon is not taking an existentialist, devil-may-care, godless approach in these verses. But instead, this is godly advice on how the genuinely wise person should pursue life. And the reason that I say that is because there's a very important element in these three verses at the end of chapter 2 that's barely been alluded to in all that we've seen so far. Notice the introduction of God into the equation. God is mentioned directly three times in just these three verses, whereas he had been mentioned only once in the 41 verses prior to this. And that one mention is back in chapter 1 and verse 13. And it's clearly a negative context. It says there, what a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. We saw a few weeks ago when we considered that verse, that it's saying the punishment that God has meted to humanity for its sin leaves us to a life of meaninglessness toil. But that morose perspective comes when life is viewed only from what Solomon calls under the sun. 
That's a phrase that's been used several times. It's used in the entire book 29 times. The first of those is in just the third verse of chapter 1. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? But now in these three verses at the end of chapter 2 and at several points later in the book of Ecclesiastes, the light is turned on in this dark room that is the world without God. And we're told that there's another way to view life that's not confined to just the earthbound and the timebound. But rather, there's a way to look at it from above, from God's vantage point. And when looking at life through God-centered lenses, we see something totally different than life just under the sun. Verse 24 tells us that just as God is the one who has punished humanity for its rebellion and so confined it to looking at at and living life under the sun, this positive perspective on life is also from God. Verse 24 says, This too, I see, is from the hand of God. So in the words of one commentator, Solomon's message is not simply that all is meaningless under the sun, but also that joy comes from the hand of God, giving meaning to everything in life. And Solomon clings tenaciously to both of those claims. All of life is meaningless on the one hand, and yet joy is both possible and good. And it's important not to make one of these claims the only message of the book and to dismiss the other. Solomon insists on both, and he insists on both often in the same passage. I'm reminded of an old cartoon in which a publisher is pleading with Charles Dickens to change the most famous opening line in the history of novels. Mr. Dickens, either it was the best of times or it was the worst of times. It can't be both. But, of course, it can be both. And it often is. We live in a world that is cursed by sin, but also in a world that God created essentially good and that God himself has visited in the flesh and that he's working to redeem through the life and death and resurrection of his Son. So we experience joy as well as sorrow. Especially we can experience that joy if we know God in a personal and saving way. And that's why the Bible can say in your New Testament to people who know God through Jesus Christ, everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. That is, the Christian has this radically different perspective, and now they can go through the same experiences and engage in the same things, but do so with a sense of satisfaction that eludes those that are outside of Christ. Christians can indeed live meaningful lives. But if we're going to do that, perspective is everything. That is, It all depends on how one looks at life, and only the person who is the Christian can look at life through God-centered lenses. There was a debate a couple of years ago between Christian pastor Douglas Wilson and an infamous atheist. Uh, Some of you may know the name Christopher Hitchens. He's now deceased. But they engaged in a series of back-and-forth debates online. They also traveled around the, the country and met at various venues to debate in person. But in that online debate, at one point, uh, Hitchens is saying, 
you know, where is your proof that God is good? That was Hitchens' premise. In fact, he wrote a book called God is Not Good. So where's your evidence that God is good? And Douglas Wilson knew what I've just said, what Solomon has said in Ecclesiastes, that the only way you will see that God is good is if you have lenses to see that. If you have eyes to see that, if you have the renewed perspective that allows you to see that. But he said this in response. Wilson said, evidence comes to us like food. And that's why we say grace over it. And we're supposed to eat it, not push it around on the plate. And if you don't give thanks, it never tastes right. But here's some evidence of the goodness of God for you in no particular order. And then he just lists these random things. The engineering that went into ankles. That Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, just like he said. A woman's neck. Bees fooling around in the flower bed. The ability of acorns to manufacture enormous oaks out of stuff they find in the air and dirt. Forgiveness of sin. Storms out of the north, the kind with lightning. Joyous laughter. The ocean at night with a full moon. Delta blues. The peacock that lives in my yard. Sunrise in color. The pleasure of sneezing. Eye contact. Having your feet removed from the miry clay and established forever on the rock. And he ends by saying, you may say none of this tastes right to you. But then he says to this atheist, but suppose you were to bow your head and say grace over all of it. That changes your perspective on everything. And that's why Christians, and I might add Christians alone, can have a meaningful life. And that's possible, I say in your outline. Christians can have a meaningful life because of what verse 25 says. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? Now, verse 25 begins with the word for, so it's telling us why Christians can have this meaningful life. In the only other mention of God in the book up until now, God has seemed to be part of the problem. But here God's presence makes all the difference. According to verse 25, no one can ever find true joy in anything apart from God. So if anyone is having trouble finding enjoyment in life, and let me just stop there. If anyone is having trouble finding enjoyment in life, don't raise your hand. Just ask yourself the question. Are you having trouble with that? Are you having trouble finding enjoyment in your life? If anyone is, it must be because God is not at the center of things. Because if God is at the center of things, then indeed we find enjoyment. Then indeed we find meaning in even the mundane. Things like eating and drinking. And this is why I say, fairly often, you show me a joyless person. And I will show you an ungrateful person. Earthly pleasures are gifts from God. They have their limits, of course, so they'll never give us eternal satisfaction. But the legitimate enjoyment they bring encourages us in the worship of God. 
Few things are better in life than to receive his earthly blessings as gifts and then return thanks to him. Isn't it strange, asked one preacher, that the more you run after life, panting after every pleasure, the less you find? But the more you take life as a gift from God's hand, responding in thankful gratitude for the delight of the moment, the more that seems to come to you. It is strange but true. When you learn to receive the good things in life as gifts rather than taking them as entitlements, then you experience joy and true thanksgiving. And your work, too, is a gift that we receive from the hand of God. It's been true from the very beginning. Sometimes we imagine Adam and Eve had nothing to do in the garden, but in fact, God gave them good, hard work to do. Work is one of the ordinances of creation. It's part of God's original goodness given to humanity. Unfortunately, because of Adam's sin, our work has been cursed, which turns our labor into toil and trouble. But there is still, even in this fallen world, a basic goodness about work that comes from our Creator. Remember this, we were made in the image of a working God. And so we have the capacity to find his pleasure in work itself, even apart from anything we gain by working. One has said this, work is the natural exercise and function of man, the creature who is made in the image of his creator. When we work, therefore, we should feel his pleasure. And the way to experience this pleasure is to work for God, not to simply work for ourselves. It's so easy, is it not, to get caught up in our career ambition, in our work schedule, in our paycheck, and do all of that without ever stopping to consider whether our work is pleasing to God, both in what we do and in the way we do it. Difficult work is more satisfying and even more enjoyable when it's done for the greater glory of God. And for the believer in Christ, our true boss And ultimate master is the Savior who gave his life for us on the cross. Whatever our job happens to be, whether we work as a teacher or as a student, as a homemaker or as a cabinet maker, as a buyer or a seller, as an office worker or a factory worker, in food service or in financial services, we're working for the Lord Jesus. To put this another way, The perspective that we as Christians are called to have, and we alone can have, is that we are working under the sun, S-O-N, not simply under the sun. And so the scripture gives us this command. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, It is the Lord Christ that you are serving. So Christians can have a meaningful life because of a couple of things that I say in your outline. The first is it's God's gift. We can have this meaningful life because we understand and approach life as it really is, as God's gift. Verse 26 says, God Gives, And then we're going to see the things that he gives in just a bit. God gives. And it's not here speaking of life in the sense of physical life, 
and the mere ability to breathe and to function. God gives that to everyone. The great apostle, when he met with Athenian philosophers in Athens, Greece, as recorded in Acts chapter 17, said this, God himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So it's not just talking about physical life, the ability to breathe and to function. Rather, it's talking about giving real life and real enjoyment of life as opposed to the drudgery and meaninglessness of life lived merely under the sun. Verse 26 again, to the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness or joy. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. Now, this might seem like a form of works righteousness. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. But what we see here instead is a careful distinction between people who, on the one hand, live under the mercy of God, and on the other hand, people who persist in their sins. One commentator explains it this way. Notice how the people who please God are described. They're the grateful recipients of spiritual blessings. God has given wisdom, which for the first time in this book is described as a divine gift rather than a human enterprise. And then with wisdom comes knowledge and also true spiritual joy, translated here as happiness. The reason these people are pleasing to God is because they have been blessed by God. Now, please notice this carefully. They are pleasing because they've been blessed. They've not been blessed because they are pleasing. God works in them first. And then it shows up in them pleasing him in the way they live grateful, God-centered lives. Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner says the contrast here is between the satisfying spiritual gifts of God, wisdom, knowledge, and joy, happiness, which only those who please him can desire or receive. It's between that and the frustrating business of amassing what cannot be kept, a business which is the chosen lot of those who reject him. So Christians can live these meaningful lives because this life, true life, not just physical life, but spiritual life is God's gift. And I say in your outline, it's God's gift and it's God's desire. Did you know, friends, that God is not a cosmic killjoy? Contrary to popular opinion, God is not out to get you. It's not his design. Rather, it's God's desire that all enter into a satisfying relationship with him. Such that that changes their lives, not only for the life to come, but in the life we live now. It's God's desire that you have a satisfying relationship, a meaningful relationship with him. This is simply the kind of God he is. He is a generous, gracious, giving God. That's why the Bible says, for example, in James chapter 1, every good and perfect gift comes from above. It's why Jesus, when he was teaching his first followers to pray, and he was saying, you can come to your father and you can ask for things and you can pour out your desires. And then in that context, he says, your father in heaven gives good gifts to those who ask him. 
This is the kind of generous, gracious God that he is. But in our sin, we have sought to thwart God's good design and desire and go our own way. And still, God persists in chasing us down and changing us so that his good gifts are enjoyed. And he is glorified as the giver of those gifts. But it's only those people who have been so changed that see it that way and experience it that way. And that's why I say in your outlines, Christians fulfill God's desire. This is the kind of God he is. This is his desire for everyone, but only those who have been changed from the inside out fulfill that desire in their lives. In verse 26, it tells us that God gives wisdom and knowledge and happiness or joy. Just a few verses earlier, back in verse 21 that we saw last week. While still looking at life from this perspective as time-bound and earth-bound and just under the sun, it said there in verse 21 that wisdom and knowledge and skill are something that many people possess. But in that context, they still don't bring meaning. And yet here it's saying that God gives this wisdom and this knowledge. Something has happened between verses 21 and verse 26 so that the same abilities of wisdom and knowledge have radically different results. And theologically, I'm going to describe to you what has happened and what's described in other passages of Scripture. What has happened is that God has moved on the heart of the individual so that they now see what they were previously blinded to. They've been given now spiritual life so that they can truly live life. Back in verse 21, it's still describing the person who's looking at life through the eyes with which we come into the world. Let me remind you, friends, of the eyes through which we see the world and we come into the world with this natural but sinful perspective. The Bible says this, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. All of us also lived gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. That's every last person who is born into God's good but fallen world, comes into it with this fallen, sinful perspective. Every last person, you and me and everybody else. But thankfully, that chapter goes on to tell us what God does. And it says, but because of his great love for us. (laughs) What a blessed contrast. This is what we were. This is what all of us were. This is how all of us saw things. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. And so what's happened in between verse 21 of chapter 2 in Ecclesiastes and now in verse 26 where you have knowledge and wisdom, but now both of those same skills are being used in totally different ways is that God has changed the perspective from the inside out of that person. He's given spiritual life to that person. So that Christians fulfill God's desire for them to have, yes, everlasting life, but for them to have abundant life now, for them to have real life now, for them to see life as it truly is now. 
Christians fulfill God's purpose. I say in your outline. Non-Christians fail God's desire. Christians fulfill God's desire. Non-Christians fail God's desire. Because you see, friends, apart from an act of God's grace on the heart of any person, they go their own way. They just naturally go their own way. Nothing has to happen for people to go away from God. We're already coming into the world naturally doing that. And so verse 26 says, But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. The passage refers to sinners. The word... (laughs) Sin, sinful, sinners, sinned, all the variations, is used nearly a thousand times in your Bible. If you have a preacher, a professing preacher of the word, like, say, Joel Osteen, show up on television and say, I'm quoting, I don't preach on sin. Well, see, the thing is, it's mentioned like a thousand times in your Bible. So what are you preaching on if you're not preaching on what the Bible says? And here the Bible says those outside of Christ are are still sinners. We were all sinners, but now they are still sinners. And the word translated sinner is a hunting term that means to miss the mark. It describes someone taking aim and missing. Now, I know we have a number of hunters in here, and I'm sure that some of you have taken aim and missed, which means you are all big, fat sinners. A sinner is one who falls short, who misses the mark, in particular, one who falls short of the demands of a holy God. And you see, there are many ways to miss. You can miss to the left, you can miss to the right, you can overshoot. But sinners always undershoot. They fall short of the glory, the character of God. In the way they think, the way they talk, the way they act, the way they pursue their lives. If all of us were to go to the Detroit River, we would have a contest as to who could jump the farthest into the river. Many of you would jump further than me. Some would jump 15 feet, maybe some 20 feet, some 10 feet, some of us 2 feet. But we would all be wet. We would all fall short. And that's the imagery in the biblical term sinner. God has established the standard. In fact, God himself is the standard and we all fall short. And we don't just fall a little short. We fall short greatly, infinitely. So you might jump, as it were, in your spiritual life farther than I do. I might jump farther than someone else. But we all fall short of God's standard because this standard is, according to the Bible, the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God's desire is that everyone know life, know him, and then in turn know life. That's why the Bible says this from the mouth of God. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. I, God, take no pleasure in that. That is not the kind of God I am. But if you continue on your natural path, Ecclesiastes is telling you where it goes. 
This is what's meant in this famous passage in 2 Peter chapter 3. The Lord does not want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But if one does not do that, then they are left. They are consigned to the natural way of life, go through a meaningless life, toil, and then give the wealth that you accumulate to someone else ultimately. You may recall the story of God's deliverance of the nation Israel when they were in bondage in Egypt. After 430 years of slavery, God reached down and brought this nation out of Egypt and he gave them freedom. And God said, by the way, before I lead you out, I want you to go to your Egyptian neighbors and tell them you want their wealth. Now, we would say, who in their right mind would hand over their money and their gold and their jewels to a neighbor that just came by and asked. (laughs) But you guys remember the context. They've just seen ten plagues rained down by God on Egypt because Pharaoh had refused to let Israel go. The land had been decimated. And in that context, if an Israelite knocked at an Egyptian's door in that setting and asked for his wealth, they'd just say, take it, just leave. And that's actually what the Bible tells us happened. They plundered the wealth of Egypt. God gave the ungodly the task of gathering wealth to give to his children. Now, in Solomon's day, the nation of Israel was directed by God himself and populated by the people of God. And almost invariably, those who were wicked in that nation and who gathered wealth by ungodly means would die and they would leave it to someone who was godly. Now, that doesn't happen that often today. But understand this, there's coming a day when the Lord will shake this universe and he will transform it. And there's coming a day when God will give this world to his children as an inheritance. And all the things that men and women think are so important, more important than God himself, will become the possessions of the followers of God. And that's why Jesus said in his famous Sermon on the Mount, the meek will inherit the earth. The work of the sinner provides no ultimate gain. And so Solomon's summary of the work of the sinner is found at the end of chapter 2, at the end of verse 26. This too is meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. And so with all of that, friends, I say in your take-home truth, Christians can live a meaningful life in a meaningless world. Christians can. And that meaning can be found now, not just later. Too many Christians just say, I'm just waiting for the sweet by and by. But you and I are to be about real life right now. And the work that we do has significance, not only for eternity, but significance in the here and now. Because Jesus, hear this, Jesus is at work now. And Jesus is at work through us now. When Jesus walked the earth 2,000 years ago, he said, My Father is always working, and I too am working. Jesus said as well in the chapter before that, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So I, Jesus, God the Son, am carrying out the work of God the Father 
But then the Bible goes on to say this. After Jesus has raised and he's returned back to the Father, and he's now left his mission to his first followers, and then by extension to us, in the first book after the Gospels, the life and times of Jesus when he walked the earth, in the first book after that, in the very first verse, here's what it says. In my former book, that is the Gospel of Luke, because Luke wrote this sequel as well. In my former book, the Gospel of Luke, I wrote about all that Jesus, now notice this, began to do and teach. And now this book is called the Acts. We call it the book of Acts. Why? Because it's the actions, it's the practices, it's the work that God's followers now continue to do. Jesus began that work of the Father, and now his followers are continuing that work. The Bible tells us later that this Christ who left this work for us to do, he began, we continue. This Christ equips his people for works of service. So you can live a truly meaningful life if you work for the Lord Jesus in this life. And God can make up for years of futility in just a few remaining moments or years of your life. Did you know that? You know, I preach a message like this and I think about the person here who might say, you know, I have not lived my life this way. And yet I'm toward the end of my life. I've wasted it all. Well, that's a God-given gift that you recognize that what you've done up to this point has not been centered upon God and upon God's mission. Consider that a gift from God. But hear this, God can make up for decades of wasted time in even the last moments of your life. As Jesus hung on the cross between two thieves, you'll remember that one of those thieves mocked him and said, you say that you're the Savior, then save us. Save yourself. And the other said, don't you fear God? This man's done nothing wrong. We've been criminals our entire lives. He's done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, just these words, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus replied this way, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Almost seems unfair. This guy's been a criminal his whole life. And now at the last minute he says, oh, hey, give me a ticket. It is unfair. And that's a wonderful thing. Because friends, hear this. If God gave any of us what is fair, we would never be saved. Grace is by definition giving you what is unfair. It is God not giving you what you deserve. But in his love and his mercy, putting what we deserve upon God the Son on the cross. Don Ritchie talked with people out of despair, the Australian that I mentioned at the beginning. At least for the moment, he would talk them out of that. But sadly, I have no doubt that many of them returned in the months and years after to that same kind of despair. They may not have ended their lives. I certainly hope they did not. But if they did not turn to Christ then there remains that deep emptiness with which they suffer or they seek to deaden with the various escapes that we concoct to simply cope. 
And no one was made by God to do that. And God desires that all of us have a meaningful life. And he offers that to you. And we're going to bow in just a moment. And when we do, I encourage everyone who knows Jesus Christ to thank him. Thank him for everything, the seemingly mundane, in particular for the fact that we have a relationship with him, but for every last thing that he has given us to use for him and to enjoy for his glory. And if you do not know Jesus Christ, that's the only way to have this meaningful life. So I encourage you to recognize, realize that you're a sinner. and Recognize that Christ died for your sin. Repent. Repent means this. I'm going to follow you, God. I'm going to go your way, not my way. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life, and it's there for the asking. The thief on the cross said, Lord, remember me. You, in your words, from your heart to God, you say to him, Lord, I realize I'm a sinner. I realize I've been going my own way. I realize I don't have this meaning and satisfaction in life. I ask you to grant that to me. Forgive me of my sin. I'm going to go your way, not my way. He promises to deliver you, to rescue you, to save you. Let's bow together. Father, you've gathered us and you've taught us. It's your word, Lord, and so we thank you. We thank you for giving us truth that is real. Truth that applies on Monday as much as it does on Sunday. Lord, I pray that these truths will not be lost on anyone in this room. That your spirit would move on the hearts of each person here, drawing those who do not know you out of the world and to yourself. And the gracious act that only you can do in giving them spiritual life and causing them to turn and follow you. And Lord, for those of us in whom you have done that work, we are profoundly thankful. And Lord, now you have turned us into lips and lives that sing your praise And seek to do your bidding in your world. And we do so with joy. Because now we have a radically different perspective on life. So that every moment of every day counts. And right now counts forever. We thank you. And we give you the praise and the glory. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.